friends, would you open up your Bibles? Romans chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to, called to belong Christ, Jesus Christ, to all who, those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word, Lord. May be seated. So, we are embarking on a two-year study through the book Romans, and honestly, I am thrilled and daunted. And when I say it's a two-year, it doesn't mean a uh, hundred sermons, a hundred and some, hundred four sermons. It's forty-eight sermons plus Advent plus Lent plus uh, a little break here and there. So it's forty-eight sermons, but it's going to take us two years to go through this book. The book of Romans is unique, and it is a powerful book in the Bible. I've never preached through it before, and that's no accident whatsoever. I'll be honest, this book, this book is a sacred, is sacred ground for me. It is sacred ground for the church, and I hope, if it isn't already, that it will become near and dear to your heart. While I have a deep love and reverence for the entire Bible, there are some books that honestly make me tremble. And it, Romans is one of those books that make me tremble. I was kind of joking with the, the worship team this morning that, man, if I screw up Romans, we should just shut Missio Day down. Right? Because this is, this is one of those books that is revered. It is revered. Romans would be at the top of the list of those books that, that make me tremble. This book has changed the course of people's lives throughout the world and throughout history. Let me give you an example, and this is from R. Ken Hughes' commentary on Romans. He said this, St. Augustine, the most brilliant theologian of the early centuries, came to conviction of sin and salvation after reading some verses from the 13th chapter. Martin Luther recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith from his study of Romans 1, verse 17, and went to leave the Protestant Reformation. While listening to uh, the reading of Luther's preface to the book of uh, Romans, John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed in conversion and became the catalyst of the great evangelical uh, revival of the 18th century. John Bunyan, was so inspired as he studied the great themes of Romans in the Bedford Jail that he wrote the immortal Pilgrim's Progress. The reason this book is so powerful is due to what is contained in 16 short chapters. Romans is sacred ground because of the truth that it unpacks. 
Listen to what Martin Luther had to say. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it is the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it daily, as the daily bread of the soul. John Calvin, in exhorting pastors, made this book clearly emphasized, he made it clear and he emphasized its seriousness, the content serious. This is critical stuff, as he talks to pastors. If we have granted, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of Scripture. So if we get this book, it just opens up door after door after door after door for the entire Scriptures. So I've not preached this book before because of my deep respect, my uh, an awe for it, and honestly, a kind of a fear of it. There are profound truths. While I don't feel worthy in any way or adequate, I feel it is time, especially after we have looked through Colossians and seen what Paul says about a Christ-centered life. What does it mean to have Christ at the very center of our very life? And Romans kind of expands on that, kind of brings it to a whole new level. What does it really mean? Let's, let's plummet the depths of the doctrine of salvation and what that means for us as a church as we go out and live lives. So as we look at each section in this book, I hope that you see, you will experience that you will have expositional exaltation, as John Piper describes it. I, I hope that you see what Paul says, exposition, that your heart will be feel, filled with worship, exaltation, expositional exaltation. So let me encourage as you come to worship, even on Saturday night, I pray that you will say, God, open my, my ears and my eyes, my heart, to receive what you have in store for me. I want you to remember that we are not just studying, academically studying a book of the Bible. We are beholding the glory of God through Romans. We are beholding the glory of God through Romans. So as we begin our study, let me pray. <laughs> God, you have given this church and the church through the ages a gift. You have given us all of Scripture. And it has been breathed out. It has been inspired from you. There's not one nook or cranny that is unworthy of our study. <coughs> Every word is a gift from you. So Lord, I pray especially in these next two years that you will gift us with your spirit and lead us towards expositional exaltation as we enjoy this book. May transform us, renew our minds, further equip us to be missionaries, evangelists, right where you have put us. In 
So as we begin our study this morning in verses 1 through 7, I want us to answer three fundamental questions. Three fundamental questions. These are going to be kind of three points. Number one, what is the theme of the book of Romans? That's our first question. What is the theme? The second is, what is the background? What is kind of the undercurrents of what is going on in the book of Romans? Why was this book written? Uh, and then lastly, how does this book begin? So looking at verses 1 through 7. Starting off with the question, what is the theme of Romans? If you were to read through the book of Romans in one sitting, which I would highly encourage you to do regularly, 16 chapters, it's easy. You can do it in, in a short amount of time. But read through it, you are going to quickly discover how prominent and frequent the word righteousness is. Righteousness. And maybe through your reading, you go through and you kind of circle time and time again, and you're going to see this theme. The word is used 41 times in 37 verses. And it is the major theme of this book. Righteousness, by definition, means a, a holy, a moral, an uprightness. In, in, in Romans, the term is used for God and for those who are in right relationship with God. The Greek term here means to have a right relationship even with somebody else. A right relationship. When it comes to God, it means that He is the standard for righteousness. Not our culture. Not the church. God is the standard for righteousness. He is righteous. For human beings, it means that we are made or declared to be righteous. So Romans is about the righteousness of God and the righteousness of that He graciously creates in our life. God creates righteousness in us. So the theme of the book is righteousness through the gospel. That's our theme. Righteousness through the gospel. The means by which the righteousness, the holiness of God is revealed and received is the gospel. The gospel. And the gospel is the message, if you're looking for a short definition of what the gospel is, it is the message that Jesus came into the world, died and resurrected in order to make unrighteous sinners righteous. That is the message at its core of the gospel. Jesus came to make unrighteous righteous. And we see this theme, the gospel, God's righteousness, faith-based righteousness in Romans uh, 1, 16 through 17. These two verses are really the overarching theme for the entire book. Look at it quickly if you still have your Bible open. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it... In what? The gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we're, we're going to unpack that verse next week. Just kind of giving you a little bit of teaser ahead of time. But today I simply want you to see the connection between the gospel and righteousness. The book of Romans is a magnificent uh, presentation of the gospel. In 16 chapters, the good news that God has provided righteousness based on not what we can do ourselves, 
but on what God has already done for us in sending His Son for a sacrifice for us. The argument of this book follows a very classic line of reasoning. Very classic line of reasoning that is reflected in uh, many of Paul's letters. And we experience that in uh, the book of Colossians as well. It moves from doctrine to practice. Doctrine to practice. The Romans, the book of Romans is not just a theoretical kind of heady book or merely a theological book, which many people kind of look at. From it we can mine the great truth, yes, but that's never enough. It shows us the beauty of the theology and the practice of righteousness from the gospel. So we're going to examine this book in, in five mini-sections. So we've got five mini-series again, all right? So we're going to see in chapters 1 through 3 this theme, the revealing of righteousness. In other words, how God's righteousness and our unrighteousness is made absolutely crystal clear. Uh, there are going to be about six sermons, just so you know, in this first mini-series on just sin. Yeah, you're looking forward to it, right? You know, another sock across the chin. But we're going to be really looking in-depth of God's holiness, His righteousness, and our unrighteousness. And we need to understand that with great clarity before we can move on. For us to understand ourselves and for us to understand the lost and broken world out there. The holiness of God and our unholiness, our brokenness. Then we're going to move into the second section, the gift of righteousness in chapters 3 to 4. How righteousness comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. How it's a gift from God. Now the third section is the, the hope of righteousness in chapters 5 through 8. How righteousness by faith gives us hope. So this is now how we can live. We're going to see in, in the fourth section the mystery of righteousness. How God's sovereign plan for righteousness just ultimately humbles us. Where Our, our minds are just blown away by this gift. It's, it's a mystery. Why? And then... Lastly, in the fifth section, it's a lifestyle of righteousness. How righteousness actually works. It's not just something given to you and you, you wear it as some kind of vestment. It is something that works within you in a lifestyle every day. So this book is about God's righteousness, the gospel, and our righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans is about righteousness through the gospel. That is our theme. But what is the background, the kind of the undercurrents? Why did, why did Paul write it? Because when we study, we need to know when we study the Bible, it is important that we attempt to understand the background of a particular book. There's some specific reasons why each book in this Bible was written. We need to understand the context, and that context helps us to interpret more, more faithfully. It, it's helpful to know the audience, the author, and the occasion that prompted that this book would be written. So let's start off with the authorship. The authorship of Romans is 99% uncontested that it is Paul. It's, it's straightforward. The, even the first verse clearly identifies 
the Apostle Paul as the author of this book. And there's few, very few author, uh, commentators out there who would, who would go against that. But in, in chapter 16, we learn of a man named Tertius uh, who says that he wrote the letter, but it's likely it was uh, Paul's secretary, his, his guy who was writing it for him, who physically actually did the work while Paul spoke the words Tertius wrote him for him. So Paul is arguably, as we know, one of the most influential people in the course of Christianity apart from Christ, right? His strength was the way in which he presented a compelling argument for the gospel based on his understanding of the Jewish tradition. After all, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew it. He was a persecutor of the church because he was a purist of the Jewish tradition. He desired a pure Jewish gospel, if you will, to be maintained. Paul loved the gospel, however. He was transformed by the gospel. On, on his way to Damascus, he ran headlong into Christ himself. And so he loved the gospel, how Jesus transformed him. And his letters present his argument for the true Christian faith. And this letter is addressed to all those who are in Rome. It's not addressed to one specific church, but it seems to be written as a distribution to a series of house churches that met all throughout Rome. We discover later in, in this letter that Paul has never actually visited the city of Rome, despite his strong desires and his attempts to get there. He's never been to Rome. So unlike other churches to whom Paul wrote, he never he, he neither planted the church, nor did he visit the church. Kind of similar to the last book that we wrote, read about, right? Colossians. In fact, we are not sure how the church was actually started. It could have happened because of Pentecost. That happened that we see in Acts chapter 2, right? And the result of Pentecost was, was the Jewish people who had gathered in Jerusalem were sent out. They went back out. And if you remember what happened there, there was a great list of people from all over the world who had gathered. And all of a sudden, they heard the gospel for the first time in their own tongue, right? Their own language. And they went back to wherever they came from with the gospel, carrying the gospel. So maybe converts took the message of the gospel to Rome. So the church in Rome is not directly connected to Paul, and this will become an important reason why Paul wrote the book to the Romans. Well, I'm not directly connected to you, but you need to hear this message. Understanding the reason why Paul wrote Romans takes a little bit of piecing together uh, various pieces of information. We know, historically, that the uh, from a Roman historian, that at in 49 AD, the Roman emperor Claudius expelled a number of Jews who were followers of Jesus. He expelled them from, from Rome. In Acts chapter 18 makes a reference to this at, when Aquila and Priscilla fled and they went to Corinth because of this very thing. So we can infer that this Christianity began to sweep 
sweep through Jewish synagogues, and it created a conflict so great that Claudius solved the problem by displacing Jewish Christians. I'm kicking them out of the city. It's causing too much pain. It's causing too much controversy. Kicking them out. Therefore, the church at Rome was likely comprised of a Gentile majority and a Jewish minority. And they were very likely, it was very likely, they were familiar with the issues that surfaced between Jews and Gentiles when the gospel advanced. Whenever the gospel is received, there were cultural questions that suddenly came up about the law. Questions about circumcision. The, the equality of Jews and Gentiles. And how a person becomes a part of God's covenant community. How do we then become a part? What, what's our relationship to all these things? And if this is right, and I think that it is, it would explain why Paul leads off his letter about the, co- the gospel coming first to the Jew and then to the Greek. That's what we find in, in uh, 1 verse 16. It also explains why he sends, spends so much time dealing with the law, the place of Israel, and how to deal with matters of personal freedom related to clean and unclean foods. So the church at Rome was probably constantly dealing with significant cultural challenges because of different kinds of people brought together into a community of faith much like us. We're not a homogenous, all the same kind of people. So we must ask, how does the gospel impact us as we relate to one another? So Paul likely wrote this letter when he was in the city of Corinth, and he sent it via a a woman named Phoebe, who was a servant of the church. It's likely that it was written between uh, uh, 54 and 58 AD, after Paul had completed his third missionary journey, and before he delivered a special offering to the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul was about to travel to Jerusalem to deliver this gift, a special gift to uh, relieve the saints in Jerusalem, and he was concerned about what was going to happen to him there in Jerusalem. He knew that his arrival would create quite a deal of uproar. But for him, in Paul's heart of heart, there was a particular part of the world that he had great concern for. Spain. His heart was for Spain. Paul desperately wanted to go to Spain to preach the gospel and to plant churches there. That was what he had a desire to do. And you get a clear sense of that in chapter 15 where it says, this is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. And to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. And then it says in verse 28, 
When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. This seems to be Paul's hope that Rome would be to Spain as Antioch had been for modern day Turkey and Greece. Antioch was a base, an outpost for sending out gospel-minded people to plant churches. And Paul was hoping that Rome would be an Antioch for Spain. Sending out people with the good news of Christ. So what's kind of the background? It's a series of house churches comprised of Gentiles and Jews who have no personal connection with Paul, and yet... They are strategically located in a place for mission of reaching unreached people. Strategically. Rome was a huge opportunity. It was the center of the Roman Empire. And Paul was going, if we could get Rome, we could reach the world. So what does Paul do to bring unity and a sense of mission to this church? He preaches the gospel to them. He gives them the most systematic summary of the gospel that we have in the entire Bible so that they will know how to live in harmony and how to have a platform for outreach. As we study Romans, we cannot forget this. The doctrine contained in this book and its focus on righteousness is not merely a theological or even an intellectual exercise for us. A right understanding of the gospel, friends, will affect our relationships and our sense of mission. When we understand righteousness, it creates an urgency within us. This just makes sense, doesn't it? Church at its best is when people from different walks of life and different struggles are united in love under the banner of Jesus Christ. That's church at its best. Church at its best is when people are so captured by the gospel that they're compelled to give They're compelled to give, to reach unreached people. And they're compelled to open their mouth and declare the good news of Christ. That's church at its best when we get it and we're compelled to share. And church at its worst is when people who claim to follow Christ cannot get along and when it forgets about people who have not yet received Christ. That's church at its worst. And this is the revolution of of Romans. To address the problem of their differences and to give them a heart for the spread of the gospel, Paul preaches the gospel to them. He reminds them of the good news of Jesus Christ. He loves them by sharing the glory of God in the gospel. I love you enough that I'm going to keep telling you the gospel until your heart is changed. We can never get over the gospel. His vision in Romans is that the believers in Rome would understand the power, the power of righteousness through the gospel 
in their lives and in, in their sense of mission. That is why he said, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. Wrapped up in the gospel, the good news of Christ is the very power of God. Think about this. Volcanoes erupt, right? And we're, we're in awe. Oh my goodness. Tornadoes can destroy. It's the power of God. No. You want to know where the power of God is rested in? It's found in the gospel. This is where the power of God in its purest, most powerful form is. It's in the good news of Christ. So with that lens, look at how Paul closes the book in Romans chapter 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about obedience in the faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So the vision of Romans is to see individuals, to see house churches, to see missional communities, to see whole churches, and the entire world transformed under the banner of righteousness that comes from God through the gospel. In other words, what is in this letter, friends, and I need you to believe this, what is in this letter can change the world. It can change the world. That's why I pray, God, open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have in store for us. And he's saying, it is the very power of God. Receive it, for it will change. You won't change the world. He will change the world. And it already has. Even for myself, I wonder if we... if. How we see the gospel is really healthy. For myself, for many years, even in my early years of pastoring, I used to think of the gospel as merely just the beginning point of salvation, right? It, it, it's the means by which God changes a person. Then the rest is just hard work. I viewed the, the gospel as just basically elementary stuff. Then we're going to get on to some complex stuff. But I've come to agree with C.J. Mahaney with what he says in The Cross-Centered Life when he says this, the gospel isn't just one class among many that you attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. The gospel, the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, is the power of God. So how does this, how, how does this book begin in these first seven verses? I've already kind of touched on some of the themes that we see here in verses 1 through 7. 
But I think it's valuable to see the way that Paul starts this book and to specifically see how the gospel defined his identity, his message, and ultimately his mission. His identity, his message, and his mission. The first verse in Rome includes Paul's name and three titles by which he identified himself, right? He says, uh, first of all, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul considered him, himself as a slave, a doulos, a slave. By listing this verse, he, he, he's making an important statement that his authority and his identity are derivatives from his relationship with Christ. They come from his place in Christ Jesus. The gospel gave him a servant identity. Secondly, he, it says that he is called to be an apostle. Paul was miraculously and sovereignly called by God in Acts chapter 9. And this word, called, kletos, will appear in other places in Romans for God's calling to salvation and ministry. In other words, God had invaded his life with the gospel. Invaded his life. Out of nowhere, God shows up, takes over, invades, and his life has never been the same. He has been invaded by the gospel. And then from that comes his next one. That God had set him apart for the gospel. Not only was he changed by the gospel, now he was set apart for the gospel. God had a very, very specific purpose for Paul. And friends, he has a very specific purpose for you. You have been set apart for the gospel. Know that. It identifies your calling in life, no matter what you do vocationally, you have been set apart for the gospel. You do not need to be a paid pastor, work at a Christian camp, be a missionary to be set apart for the gospel. We all have been set apart for the gospel. No matter where you live. Even in Galatians 1, Paul says that he was separated from birth. For this very purpose. His life was given to the spread of the gospel. And may that be true for us. May our lives be set apart with the express purpose of spreading the gospel locally, regionally nationally, globally. And that's why maybe we should be praying for our children for locally, regionally, nationally, globally to go, therefore, into all the nations to be separated for the purpose of the gospel. So the, the, this introduction, friends, to Romans is important because it shows us how much of the gospel informed Paul's very sense of identity. He was a man who had a stellar education. You look at Paul's resume, none of us, none of us could achieve what he had done. He had quite a pedigree, and he was also a man 
with quite an embarrassing past. Yet, he in- introduces himself to the Romans with neither his past nor his pedigree. He introduces them with his identity that came through the gospel. How do you introduce yourself? Oh, I'm I'm a pastor. That's part of it. That's not the major part of it. My my identity is uh, I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ. And I happen to be a pastor. It's been set apart for the gospel. Might be a little quirky, a little corny. But think about how do we introduce ourselves to people so they understand where our identity is found. So this righteousness from the gospel really does that. It propels us. It humbles and it, it, it humbles those who are exalted and it exalts the very humble. It shows us who we really are and it also shows us who we can be, fully can be in Christ Jesus. The gospel exposes us, doesn't it? And it humbles us. It also cleanses us and changes us. And when you really understand that, the gospel becomes the center of everything in your life. Everything. Including who you, uh, including who you understand yourself to be. It changes the lens by which you look at yourself in the mirror. The gospel just doesn't change what you do or what you hope for. It changes the very who you are. So that's his identity. But what was Paul's message? Paul's last description of himself introduces the first use of of the word gospel in Romans. The term means, the gospel, the word gospel means, help me out, it means what? Good news, right? It's good news. And it is the message that God offers righteousness for those who are believing in in Jesus Christ. In verses 3 and 4, Paul expands what he means by the gospel. First of all, what does he do? He links the message to the fulfillment of all those promises in the Old Testament. He's going back. He says, look back there. Think back on what we've even looked at in this background material. Why would Paul do this? He did it to demonstrate the connection between the message of the gospel and the Jewish scriptures. He's trying to help the the Jewish and the Gentiles Jewish believers and the Gentile believers understand the beauty and the history of the gospel. This is not new news. It's always been in the the Jewish scriptures. The hope that Jesus brought was the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise and the plan of God. This is where all the trajectory of scripture is pointing towards. It's pointing towards Christ, the good news. So secondly, in his message, we see in verses 3 and 4 that Paul talks specifically about the centrality of Jesus to the gospel message. We've talked a lot about the gospel today, but when you boil down the gospel, it is ultimately about one person, Jesus. Boils it down to one person. Therefore, Paul says 
that Jesus was a descendant of David in the flesh. There's, he, he was a real man, and he descended from King David. So there's a lineage, a kinghood, kingdom-kind-of-minded people would say, he's from the line of David and a real man. He was also declared to be the very Son of God. So Paul is establishing both his humanity and his deity because they are both vital to the gospel message. So finally, you also notice how Paul describes the declaration of the Son of God in verse 4. Look at it. Let me just read it in verse 4. He is declared to be the Son of God in the power, according to the spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. So, so what is he saying here? First, notice the phrases, in power. This is going to be a, a, a theme throughout the book of Romans. The gospel is powerful. It's not just words. It's actually an action. It's a movement. And this movement changes. The gospel is powerful, and the resurrection was the most definitive statement that death had been conquered by Jesus. It's been conquered. Done. There's also the phrase, the spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit is the agent by which Christ was raised from the dead. And the Spirit is to dis was described as holy. For what reason? Probably to describe and to show us that there is a redemptive point about what comes next in the life of a believer. Holiness, right? But there's also this last little phrase, the resurrection from the dead. Since sin and death are linked together, they're linked together, then the defeat of death would mark the defeat of sin as well. And this is what Jesus did. And this is why the resurrection is so meaningful. Why we Easter Sunday is not the beginning of vacation week for schools. Easter week is the beginning of the celebration. Again, it's a reminder with an exclamation mark and another exclamation mark that we are celebrating the power of God who has defeated death and therefore he has defeated the power of sin in our life. And every believer in Christ right now should be going, Amen! Yeah, that, was, that was weak, just so you know. The resurrection declared that Jesus was the right person for the job he he was he was righteous himself and that sins now could be truly forgiven in christ jesus so we will we will see later in the book of romans that paul will make a case that those who place their faith in jesus his death and his resurrection become their own you place your faith in him therefore you know what's going to happen to you his death and His resurrection become your death and your resurrection. Followers of Jesus are considered to be in Christ Jesus. His death and His life become our death and our life. This is how God counts sinners to be righteous. What's more, God fills us with the same Spirit, the same powerful Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You say, you tell me that, Paul, I just cannot put to death this. 
I, I can't get over these feelings. I can't get over this sin issue. I can't get over this. You know what? Then you have not embraced the Holy Spirit that is living within you. The same one that worked in such a way that raised Christ from the dead. That one is at work in you. If you don't believe it, something is lacking in your belief in the gospel. There is nothing so powerful, so gripping, that Christ can't cancel it and bring you to life. Nothing. That is the message that Paul declared. Finally, his identity, his message, now his mission. And this is where I'm, I'm wrapping it up. The final thing that we see in this introduction is that Paul has a real sense of mission, of going somewhere. Remember that one of the major reasons he's writing to the believers in Rome is because of his mission, his desire to spread the gospel to Spain where it has not yet been heard. So after using the important term in verses 5 and 6 of our Lord for Jesus and identifying that the grace and the apostleship are both gifts from Jesus, Paul explains his, uh, this purpose. This is his purpose for his mission. His aim is to bring about obedience, obedience of faith for the sake of his name, for Christ's name. Bring about obedience of the faith. Throughout Romans, Paul will frequently talk about faith apart from works. But here he makes it very clear that the gospel results in obedience. You believe the gospel, it is going to bring about obedience. Even in the Great Commission, it's not just about baptizing, sharing the good news. It's teaching them to do what? Obey. Obey all that I've commanded you. <laughs> that's daunting. But that's the Christian life, right? So throughout uh, Romans, we're going to see this. We're, we're going to see that his mission is to preach the gospel and call people to believe and call them to experience the very power of God. With Spain on his heart, an introductory glimpse of that in, the, in verse 5 when Paul says, among all the nations, not just North America. We need to remember that this, this weekend. It's not just about God come and heal our land. God come and heal our world. Heal our world. Paul loves the gospel and he knows what it can do. I'm not sure we really know what the gospel can do, but Paul knows and he is so compelled to think and to pray and to work and to reach people who have not yet heard or received it. He is working to, his, to the end of his life to share the gospel. His passion for the gospel created a longing for more people to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Think about our VBS. If we would come and implore God, would the gospel come in such a way during our VBS week that it would stir a revival, a renewal, uh, people coming alive to Christ for the first time or their minds being renewed again? God, would you work here? It would come out of 
our understanding that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Friends, come July 12th. Get involved in VBS. Get involved in various ways to reach out. But here's one specific way. Get involved. Verse 6, he reminds them that they are part of that called assembly who belong to Christ. The people in Rome had heard the gospel, but Paul wanted to remember, remind them about its power in their lives and in parts of the world that had not yet received it. Remember its power to change, but remember those who are unchanged and are chained. Remember. So when you understand, friends, the gospel, hear this. When you understand the gospel, it changes how you view yourself. It changes how you view your neighborhood. It changes how we view our city. It changes how we view the world. As, as a church, we need to see ourselves, our city, and the unreached part, part, parts of the world through this lens. We need to long for the gospel to come to Joss, Nigeria. I mean, long for it and pray for it. Pray that God's power would be poured out in amazing, miraculous, life-changing, unaltering kind of ways. We need to pray for not only Joss, Nigeria. We need to pray that it comes to the urban core of our own city. That it transforms Chicago at its very heart. It's not just a big city, it is a sending city. We need to pray for it to come to areas like Frankfurt, Mokina, New Lenox, Bourbon A, Tinley Park, Lamont, you name it. We need it to come to those city areas. We need to pray for it to come to our own neighborhoods. It keeps getting smaller. We need to pray for it to hit our families and for it to really becoming right squarely into our own very lives. So the letter of Romans is really a letter written to us, friends. We need Paul's vision for Romans as much as the church in Rome did. And there's part of me who wants to say, we need it even more. It's not true. But we need this vision. We need to hear his words to the Roman, Roman church as words to us. Listen to this. And this would be paraphrasing verse 7. To all those at Missio Dei Church who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We need this book because we need to be reminded and motivated about the power of the gift of righteousness that comes through the gospel.